Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and today starts a two-part conversation that I had with Dr. Daniel B. Wallace, which sounds weird because that's his formal title, but to me, he's just Dan. (laughs) But we're going to talk for the next two weeks about why we can trust that the process of transmitting the text of the New Testament over 2,000 years is reliable and all of the main issues that go along with that. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. We really are blessed to have in the studio with us today, Dr. Dan Wallace. He is the executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, right? Say say that really fast a bunch of different times. And uh, he's also the senior professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, He was my advanced Greek grammar professor back in the day. So uh, he's tortured me in various ways. But Uh, you deserved it. I did deserve it, yeah. And then he's also just been a friend. He, he actually officiated my wedding. He was standing there with me and Margaret when we made vows to one another. So, Dan, thanks for being a part of the I, really I'm appreciate delighted it. to be here, Nathan. Good to see you again. Well, Dan has written a book along with Ed Kamashevsky and James Sawyer called Reinventing Jesus, How Contemporary Skeptics Miss the Real Jesus and Mislead Popular Culture. So, a lot of this conversation actually today is really going to be just outlining through y'all's book. But you guys talk about oral tradition. You talk about the text of the New Testament, the variants, the type of variants, the manuscript evidence of the New Testament. And then you'll also talk about the various views on the divinity of Jesus. And so I would just encourage you guys as, as you're listening to this, um, man, pick up this book. It's written at a lay level. The standard person is going to be able to understand this stuff. And also, it's going to give you what you need when some of these common questions get asked to you. And a lot of times we get tongue tied because we're like, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know the answer to that question is. This is going to give you the, the resource and the tools to be able to address uh, these questions that are commonly asked really well. And, and so I would encourage you um, to pick that up. But Dan, why don't we start this way? One, tell us a little bit about yourself. And then how in the world does a guy get into the field of textual criticism, and frankly, what is textual criticism? Well, I'm a a fourth-generation Californian who uh, has lived in Texas most of his life. My wife and I just celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary. Awesome. Congratulations. And uh, we have four adult sons, uh, three daughters-in-law, three granddaughters, and a grandson is coming next month. All right. Congratulations. I love it. I love it. uh, I moved here for my THM program at Dallas Seminary, got my master's and doctorate, and I've been on faculty at Dallas for more than 30 years. I love it. So what, in, in your academic career, like what prompted you to get into the field of textual criticism? Help our audience understand what that even is. Textual criticism is uh, a discipline that has historically been the most important discipline for all ancient manuscripts because we don't have the originals of any literary documents of the Greco-Roman world. Consequently, textual criticism is the science and art of trying to determine the exact wording of the originals when those are missing or destroyed. New Testament textual criticism is simply applied to the New Testament. We don't have the originals of the New Testament either, and we are trying to get back to the original wording on the basis of the numerous manuscripts that we have. How I got into it, uh, it was really uh, very simple. I was 16 years old when I made a, a radical commitment to Christ. And I was uh, in, in uh, growing up in uh, Newport Beach where I spent all my time body surfing. The surf sucks in Texas. It's just terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
I visited a man who owned a real estate office and uh, he had a huge sign over his, over his real estate office that says Jesus saves. Hmm. So I was, you know, just 16 year old and all lapping up whatever I could find about uh, Jesus. And so I met this guy and he sold me uh, today's English version, Good News for Modern Man, uh, paperback New Testaments at 25 cents a pop if I'd buy a box load. Hmm. And so I'd buy a box of these, put them in my little Volkswagen Beetle, drive up and down Coast Highway, pick up hitchhikers, share the gospel, and I'd run out of New Testaments about every three or four weeks and come back and get another box. That's cool. Meanwhile, I'm talking to this fellow, and he says, by the way, Jesus is not God. He's got this big billboard that says, Jesus saves, Jesus saves <laughs> yeah. but he was an Arian, someone who uh, denies wow. the deity of Christ. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't a Jehovah's Witness, but he was an Arian. Yeah. And so uh, I got confused, and I thought, I need to get into this. So I decided I've got to learn Greek, and I've got to uh, study the Greek New Testament and learn about Greek grammar so I can know what the text says, but also, or what it means, and textual criticism so I could be sure of what it actually says. Yeah. So I went to Biola University, studied under the great Harry Sturz, uh, took four years of Greek there, and then uh, double majored in it at uh, Dallas Seminary. got, I think, seven years of it, 14 classes at DTS. Yeah, yeah. Continue on. So that's that's how I got into it. It's all been related to my spiritual walk with the Lord. Mm, that's awesome. Who, who knew in the providence of God, right, that an Aryan would drive you into, you know, right. to uh, to to contribute what you've contributed to really strengthening the church. Con- controversy and heresy has a way of making uh, Christians a lot stronger. I know, right? That's really cool. So uh, I, I feel like uh, what was it. 10, 15 years ago, um, kind of out, out of the, really the, your house <laughs> in a lot of ways, you founded the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And so tell, tell everybody what that is, what's the goal of CSNTM and what's going on right now? Well, here's a, a thing for the audience to understand about it to begin with. If you want to visit our website, uh, it's uh, csntm.org, and here's a way to remember CSNTM. If you remember CS as in C.S. Lewis, you got the first two initials. <laughs> and if you've ever watched Wizard of Oz, you know who Auntie M is. So C.S. Auntie M. M. There you go. <laughs> Don't forget. Yeah, yeah. So I started it uh, 15 years ago, and it was for years in my living room and closets and things like this. We'd go on one expedition a year. Our goal was to uh, initially to digitize Greek New Testament manuscripts throughout the world make these images available online. And as we grew, it was the goal was to try to digitize all of them. So far in 15 years, we have digitized 20% of all Greek New Testament manuscripts, half a million pages. Mm. uh, And we're increasing more every year how much we get done. Mm. Uh, But uh, uh, we're the world's leader in doing that. We've discovered more than 90 Greek New Testament manuscripts in the process, more than all the rest of the institutes in the world combined Mm -hmm. have discovered in the last 15 years. And the end goal is to make these available online, free for all, free for all time, so that scholars can now use these images to create better editions of the Greek New Testament, which then become the basis for translations. We are beginning to stand at the head of the stream of all future translations of the New Testament that affect Christians throughout the world. I love it. So tell us why, why is it important? Why is it important to take 
uh, high resolution photograph of these manuscripts? Well, all we had before was uh, microfilms. Mm. And microfilm quality is so bad. It's horrible. Uh, it, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> it, it looks like lines and bumps. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's, uh, you can barely read it. You can't read it if it's red letters. There's lots and lots of uh, text and manuscripts that are written in other than black ink. You can't read it if it's faint. You can't read if it's gold letters. There's sometimes uh, mm. the scribes write an entire manuscript in gold letters. And you also cannot read the marginal notes where a scribe says he may be making a correction to mm. what he had in the text. He may be adding something that he had accidentally left out. And it's just a, a, a big blob mm. in the margin because it's smaller hand. You can't read the commentary. Scribes often put in patristic, patristic commentaries in with the text. And that's uh, often a wraparound. You've got the text in the center of the manuscript, and you know, have three sides where the uh, patristic commentary in smaller font is used. Yeah. Can't read it. Too small. So basically, in, in all of this, you're, you're giving scholars the capacity to read very clearly what these manuscripts actually say so that they can make better judgments in the future on creating editions of the New Testament. Absolutely. We, we are partnering with... Uh, the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Münster, Germany, that produces our standard Greek New Testaments. Mm. And they, they get our images so that they can create better uh, publications of the Greek text. Okay. They, they know what these manuscripts say now. Mm. Uh, they are the ones who reached out to us and said, we'd like to partner with you. It's not just so that we can read them more clearly. It's also to digitally preserve them in mm. case they get deteriorated, which all manuscripts yeah. do, get destroyed. Many manuscripts are now being destroyed intentionally. Mm. Uh, ISIS just attacked the oldest continuously inhabited monastery in the world, St. Catherine's at uh, base of Mount Sinai, Egypt. They wow. did it last month. They killed one policeman, injured four others. It's the first time they've attacked a Greek Orthodox monastery. Mm. And their goal is to destroy Christian artifacts, as they've been doing for some time, yeah, especially right. the biblical manuscripts. Mm. So there, there's some urgency in us yeah. getting this done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're not necessarily tracking along with what we're saying, basically this is what Dan is doing is preserving the text of the New Testament in such a way where where people will, like he said, have it available and available for all time because it's been digitized and copied and copied and copied. And there's multiple uh, copies of those uh, digital files that is the text of the New Testament. And so I was telling some uh, people last night, I, I think this is really important because I think in a hundred years, whether it's people intentionally destroying them like ISIS or there's a fire or there's whatever, you know, and we lose these things, the fact that, that CSNTM and others like you guys have preserved this, I think people are going to look back in a hundred years and really point to this type of work as monumental. And so one, as somebody who has been on an expedition and also knows what you guys are doing. I would just tell you guys, thank you for this work. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and I would also encourage of all organizations that we would say, Hey, let's support these guys. <laughs> um, this is one of them that I'm raising my hand going, Hey, I'm going to use my relational equity to, to get support for the ongoing work of CSNTM. If I, I, my, uh, we were at a monastery recently in Greece where in uh, about a century ago, they had a major fire arson. And they lost 39 Greek mm -hmm. New Testament manuscripts, mm -hmm. completely destroyed. Yeah. They were pitching them out the window from the library. People were dying while they're throwing these manuscripts out because they wanted to save the manuscripts. One manuscript was hid underneath a casserole dish that was flipped upside down. 
and it was saved that way. Wow. But this kind of stuff does happen, mm -hmm. and, and it continues to happen, and we're, we're trying to preserve these things. This is kind of the Indiana Jones version of, of uh, preserving the New Testament. So, No, um, Indiana Jones was an American imperialist thief. <laughs> <you know. laughs> All, you got, it's all, like Indiana Jones, except not at all. Yeah, <laughs> all all, all we take yeah. is pictures. We don't yeah, take that's right. yeah, that's right. Okay, thanks for the correction. <laughs> if you're listening to this, and I guarantee you at some point in conversations with skeptics or people who don't believe, and frankly, too, Christians who are just ill-informed, one of the most common questions that comes across, especially in our apologetics ministry and the Great Questions team, is, hey, if this book has been translated so many times, how in the world do we even know what it says? Can it be trusted? You hear that question a lot. So what would you say to that, Dan? It's a question I had when I was in junior high school and high school. But here's the problem with that question. It assumes that once it's copied, once it's translated, somebody destroys that original manuscript. Mm. That thing is still uh, extant, still intact. We still have the Greek New Testament manuscripts that stand behind the King James Bible. We know what they are. We know where they are. And uh, they're actually very recent compared to the King James, just 500 years older than the King James, but uh, at the very oldest. Mm. But we have now manuscripts that go back much, much older than that. Right, right. And it's not just translations. We're looking at the Greek New Testament manuscripts, what the original language was. If you think about uh, something like the telephone game, where you've got a line of people telling a story, uh, whispering into the next person's ear, the intention of that game by the by the time you get it to the last person is to get that total story garbled. People are intentionally trying to change it. Yeah. It's it's a fun parlor game. But some people have said the copying of the New Testament was like that. That's that's hardly the truth. Mm. First of all, we're dealing with written documents. Right. Secondly, we're not whispering. <laughs> Third, we have several lines of transmission. Fourth, we can check various stages of those lines of transmission. So if I went back to say three lines of transmission and I saw a third generation and a fourth generation and, and a second generation copy in each one of these and compared them, I could come very close to reconstructing what the original wording said. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've got manuscripts as old as the second century now. Mm, yeah. There's a great little exercise that you do with some people called the Gospel According to Snoopy. And you do this with them um, where you, you'll have an original deal and then you'll break it out to various groups and see if they can reconstruct it. And talk to us about the results that you see just in that game where it illustrates what, we're, what you're talking about. I have done the, the Snoopy seminar uh, 79 times, oh, I believe, wow. uh, <laughs> in the last 40 years. And it's a, it's a nine-hour seminar, Friday night and virtually all day Saturday. I take 22 people who are volunteers to be scribes. They copy out an ancient text. They don't know what it is till the next day. Yeah. And they take it through six generations of copies. Each scribe is given instructions like, you're hard of hearing, or you're a sloppy writer, or you want to change this to make it more orthodox or move in this direction. Yeah. And then we throw all the way the first generation copies, most of the second generation. You know. And so the next day, the next morning when we start on Saturday, we have the textual critics who have had all of one hour of training right. <laughs> trying to reconstruct the original text of Snoopy, and it takes them three or four hours just mm -hmm. to try to do this in different groups with a method that I lay out. And then we produce the text of Snoopy up on a, a couple of whiteboards. And there it, it, it's like a 50, 75 word original text. And there's about 50, 75, 100 textual variants right, right. that we're dealing with. And 
all these people, the entire group has to try to figure out what the original text of Snoopy said. Mm -hmm. Now the scribes are dead. You know, they died. Yeah. Overnight. yeah. They, <laughs> they died overnight. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but they're, they're kind of ghostly observers. Yeah, I guess. Right. Right. And, uh, I've done this, uh, you know, dozens, scores of times, uh, every time except three times we've gotten within two words mm -hmm. of reconstructing the text of Snoopy. The last time I did it, we, we got it perfectly which has happened now uh, almost 20 times. Wow. And uh, the only three times that we didn't do it were with some Stanford eggheads who were <laughs> overthinking the process. <laughs> Dallas Seminary PhD students <laughs> yeah, overthinking, overthinking the, process. the process. Yeah, yeah. And then a, a church where they didn't understand English very well. So the <laughs> <laughs> scribes didn't know what they couldn't even read English. English. <laughs> I love it. But that just goes to illustrate like we're, we're, this is nothing like the telephone game, which is what a lot of people Absolutely. think about. And then also, and this is what I tell people on uh, Monday nights when this question comes up in great questions is the, the translation, like you said, uh, question assumes that the thing that we're translating off of is gone. And uh, it's not. It's very much alive. And, and so really translation has less to do with the fact that it becomes less reliable over time. It has everything to do with this uh, translation committee is making decisions based on their audience, what, who they're trying to communicate to. So you're going to have someone like Eugene Peterson, who's going to translate the text into, and really paraphrase it in a lot of ways, to put it into the hands of somebody who's never read the Bible before so that they can understand in a simpler way versus a committee who like the new american standard bible that's going to be more wooden and uh and frankly harder to read and sometimes harder to understand not not because anything's different about it but just their the decisions they're making the committees are making have to do with those types of things right you've got really three different issues when it comes to translation what is the, one is the textual basis what are they translating mm -hmm. two is how are they interpreting it and three is the audience, the receptor, receptors that is in terms of how do you want to word this for that? So if you've got a more paraphrastic translation, that's related to the audience. But virtually all modern translations, almost all of them, are based on almost exactly the same critical text. Right. Now, there may be um, uh, dozens, maybe even hundreds of places, a few hundred places where it differs, but almost never are these uh, really significant. Right. So really, the real question that I think people should be asking is not, it's been translated so many times, how can we trust it? The real question is, okay, the thing that you're translating off of, has that been corrupted over time? Now, that's a legitimate question. It is a legitimate So, question. So let's go there. Has scripture been corrupted over time? These texts that we're translating off of, have they been corrupted? Yes. Scripture has been corrupted over <laughs> yes, time. Yes, they have. Um, <laughs> Any handwritten documents that's of, of more than a few pages, there are going to be mistakes in the transmission process. When it comes to the New Testament, we have about, the latest estimate is about one half million textual differences among the various manuscripts. That's, that's a pretty large number. When you think about the original text in the New Testament, it's less than 140,000 words. Mm -hmm. So to have a half million textual variants means she was at three and a half variants per word on yeah. average. Yeah. And uh, so if that's the only data you had, you say, well, I'm, I'm going to become an atheist and sell all my bags. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. But now I'll do a Paul Harvey tell the rest of the story. Yeah, that's good. Uh, those half a million variants, first of all, the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. Mm. 
the the latest count that CSNTM has done because we've we're not only uh, uh, photographing manuscripts, we're also discovering them. Mm-hmm. The latest count was five thousand eight hundred and sixty Greek New Testament manuscripts. That's just in Greek. But I'm going to announce that we now know of 5,861 as of last week when I was in the mountains of the Peloponnese and visited a monastery that had a manuscript that's unknown to biblical scholars. Mm. So now you guys have the latest. So <laughs> there's one more. There's one more, 5,861. <laughs> uh, if you go into Starbucks tomorrow and you say, you know, there's uh, 5,861 Greek New Testament manuscripts and a, and a skeptic says, I thought there were only 5,843. Like they would, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can correct them with this latest information. But not only do we have Greek New Testament manuscripts, and by the way, the average-sized Greek New Testament manuscripts is more than 450 pages. Mm-hmm. Not only do we have the Greek, it was translated very early on into Latin, Syriac, Coptic, Old Church, Slavonic, Georgian, Gothic, other languages. We have over 10,000 copies in Latin alone, mm-hmm. and then in the other languages, we really don't have an exact number, but it's somewhere between, uh, I, I think a, a bare minimum would be 5,000, but let's go with that number. That means we have collectively among the manuscripts about 20, 25,000 manuscripts of various languages, mm-hmm. handwritten manuscripts before the time of the printing press. Mm-hmm. Now, if I had a magic wand and could wipe all of those out, we still wouldn't be left without a witness. And that's because of these pesky little guys called church fathers yeah, yeah. <laughs> who just love to comment on scripture and they did not have the gift of brevity. Yeah, yeah. And they quoted and quoted and quoted scripture <laughs> yeah. over and over again. We have more than a million quotations of the New Testament by these church fathers from the late first century through the 13th century. And, and we're not done counting them yet. It, it's taking a long time because there's so much material. We could reproduce virtually the entire New Testament many, many times over on the basis of the quotations of the church fathers alone, yeah, if we wow. had no manuscript evidence whatsoever. Yeah. There's nothing that compares to this. Yeah. So as far as the corruption of it goes, what I'm hearing you say is there this definitely, especially in antiquity, is by far the most well attested document. Um, Absolutely. Like without question. And so I think that then the next question becomes, well, what about these variants? I mean, if there's 138,000 words in the New Testament and there's almost a half a million variants, for those, so there's three and a half for every word, like you said, that, some, that could leave you going like, uh, why in the world would I trust this at all? You right. know? And so talk to us about clearly the, because it's been hand, handwritten and copied over time, there are differences. Um, like, copying a word twice, or I know you'll get into some more examples about this, but let's talk about those variants. So what is a textual variant um, in the New Testament? Help us understand what that is, and and then talk to us about kind of how you categorize those. A textual variant is any place where there's differences between a base text and uh, any at least one manuscript. So if uh, it, it can be uh, differences in spelling, word order, uh, transpositions, additions, omissions, just about anything. Scribes getting tired and skipping a line or copying a line twice yeah, or they, something like they that. they do all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah, so yeah. I've been wrestling the last couple of years with how many lines would a scribe write out in a day. And as we've been plowing through some early manuscripts lately, we're discovering 
this guy is starting to get a cluster of mistakes. This must be at the end of his shift. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he's tired. He, he just doesn't. Somebody make Somebody give mistakes. that guy a break, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I did an experiment a few years ago on how many ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek, and it took me eight hours to write out all the ways to do mm, it. Yeah. And I didn't even finish. Uh, I wow. just felt this is good. Every <laughs> okay, I'm thing, done. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's enough. <laughs> Eight time hours to go to bed, yeah. Time for me to quit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, I, I came up with, uh, I think, 384 different ways in Greek that are always translated, John loves Mary, and it always uses the, the same verb. Mm. Now, there's different verbs Verb for, for love. love. So yeah. now you yeah. double that, and there were other ways to say it. So it comes out to about 1,200 ways which don't significantly change the meaning. If you can take that three-word translation and have 1,200 different ways to say it in Greek, how many uh, variants, when you have three and a half variants per word on average, mm -hmm. is that that significant? No, the question really is how important are these variants? What, what's the nature of the variants? The vast majority are simply spelling differences. Right. And, and then you've got uh, word order differences that don't get translated. You get uh, some other things that uh, can't be translated at all. So um, even though they're not word order differences, I'd say 99.8%, this is my, my latest estimate, 99.8% of all textual variants are either not meaningful or not viable. That is, they don't have a chance of going back to the original text. Right, they're clear. They're obviously not original to the, right. or the, right. the original text. I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of interesting ones that come late, but they're not viable. You yeah, know, right. One right. 13th century manuscript, and no, it doesn't go back to the original. Yeah, right. Or they're both not viable and not meaningful. 99.8%. So yeah. that leaves so maybe about 1,000 variants yeah. that are significant. But how significant are they really? Uh, let me give you an example. In uh, Mark 9.29, we have uh, the disciples come back from trying to... Uh, uh, cast out a demon, a, a particularly pesky demon who was, uh, yeah. you know, resistant. And uh, Jesus said, this kind cannot be cast out apart from prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. Now, did he say prayer and fasting or, as the earliest manuscripts have, uh, with prayer? This cannot be ca cast out unless it's with prayer. Did he add and fasting? Mm -hmm. That's kind of an important point, yeah, you know, yeah. but the earliest manuscripts don't have that. That I think is a, a very important issue for those who are involved in exorcisms. They got to know, do yeah. I need to fast also? Now, yeah. I actually helped a guy exercise a house once and there, there were demons that <laughs> yeah. were throwing things yeah, across yeah. the room. And, wow. and, and I decided, you know, even though I think it, the, the text ends with prayer, I'm going to hedge my bet. And I, I fasted also before. I was <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give another illustration of something perhaps a bit more uh, significant. And, and if you Google this, don't do it now, please. Uh, I'm, I'm talking, so don't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Revelation thirteen eighteen, that's the number of the beast. Yeah, yeah. Six, six, six. six, six, six. Yeah, Everybody yeah. knows yeah, that's yeah. the number of the beast. Yeah. Well, really? Mm. Well, uh, in the second century, Irenaeus knew of uh, a different reading, 616. He rejected it, but he said, I know of some manuscripts already in the second century that had that. It may be the original. Mm. To date, we have found only two manuscripts that haven't. One of these was just discovered in the last 20 years at Oxford University. But they it's the earliest papyrus for this passage. And the other manuscript is the second most important manuscript we have on Revelation. And they both have the number of the beast as 616. Mm. Now, 
it may be. That's the number of the beast. It, it, it kind of depends on what day it is, whether I think uh, the number of the beast is 616 <laughs> or 666, or I don't think about it most times. Right? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, what's interesting is most scholars still would say, well, we think uh, 666, that's the number of the beast. 616, that's the neighbor of the beast. He lives a few doors down. You know? <laughs> yeah, you have to walk down the street to get to the neighbor, the, the, the of the, the neighbor beast. The neighbor of the beast. How do you like living that zip code? I know, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to invite you to tune back in next week as Dan and I continue our conversation on the reliability of the New Testament. You can also check out what Dan is doing at his website, csntm.org. If you like what you're hearing, then subscribe, tell your friends about it. And if you have any questions or if there's a topic that you would like for us to cover, then email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Peace.